0: Mr. Chief Justice, the
1: please the court. It was the only trial that was ever conducted over the death of a president, and I was defending the the defendant that was charged with it. How could you have a more important case than that?
2: This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. In 1963 the government convened the Warren Commission to investigate the assassination of John F. Kennedy. The commission concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone to kill the president, but many Americans didn't buy it. The assassination of a president was a national trauma and the public wanted resolution. They wanted a trial. Reporter Ashley Cleek has our story.
3: Everyone over 55 remembers this moment.
1: President Kennedy died at 1 p.m.
0: Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago.
3: CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite removes his glasses and takes a breath. The president, John F. Kennedy, had been assassinated.  —
1: — We'll repeat that, President Kennedy and Governor John Connolly of Texas…
4: — I remember sort of being a uh, you know, a toddler, really, and, and looking from behind the sofa the reactions that his death had, you know, with, within my family.
3: — In his family's living room in the UK, Mark Redhead was only seven when he saw the news flash
4: on TV. — And it was a terrible realization that, you know, the world was a, a bleak place and that the hope that he offered was not necessarily to be realized.
3: For the rest of the day and into the evening, his family and families across the world sat in front of their televisions. Less than an hour later, Cronkite reported that the accused assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, had been arrested. Two days after that, while all of America watched on TV, Oswald was shot while he was being transferred to jail. And that was it. Oswald was dead. And a dead man can't be tried.
4: The assassination of President Kennedy is six seconds in in Dallas in 1963. It's a very tiny moment in history, and yet it's really, really complicated.
3: Did Lee Harvey Oswald really do it? Year after year, it remained the great American cold case. The Warren Commission was a government inquest, not a public trial. And every decade since, a film is made that presents the available evidence and tries to come up with an answer.
4: What if this man bought a rifle under an assumed name? In
3: 1964, a film called The Trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. Does
4: this man know the difference between right and wrong? In
3: 1977, another film.
5: Lee Harvey Oswald was killed before he could stand trial for the assassination of John Kennedy. Also called
3: The Trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. These films create the trial the public needed, but never had. And in 1986, at the age of 30... Mark Redhead decided to give it a go. He decided to film a mock trial, as true to life as you could possibly imagine. Redhead convinced London Weekend Television in the UK and Showtime in the US to back the project.
4: We wanted to do it the, the, is in, the, in an official way, as official a way as we possibly could, could do. So we had a sitting federal judge, we had a, had a jury drawn from the federal rolls, and we had two top US attorneys. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I don't have to tell you that you've been called upon to sit as the jury on perhaps the most important murder case ever tried in this country. Vincent T. Bugliosi uh, from Los Angeles, prosecuted Charlie Manson, a kind of uh, three-piece suit, um, Italian, aggressive, very detailed, terrier. 20 years now, we have all
1: been told that my client Lee Harvey Oswald Killed our beloved president.
4: Against Jerry Spence from Wyoming, cowboy in a fringed suede jacket and a big cowboy hat. that that's what even I thought.
3: At the time, Jerry Spence was one of the most famous defense attorneys in the country, and he agreed to be Oswald's lawyer.
1: To defend somebody who was charged with having killed the president of the United States, and nobody, no defense attorney, no trial lawyer, that was alive and breathing would have turned that opportunity down.
3: Redhead and a federal clerk from Dallas combed the city's jury rolls. They picked jurors, they found real witnesses, and they flew everyone to London for three days of filming. When they got there, they walked into a Dallas courtroom that Redhead had recreated on a London soundstage
4: he got detailed. Lucius D. Bunton came into his courtroom in in London to find an oil painting of himself that he'd never seen before, which we'd had done.
3: The trial began like a typical case.
5: Please rise.
3: In the courtroom, Oswald is represented by a cardboard cutout. It's not the mugshot that's always shown. Oswald has on a nice suit and a slight smile. This was Spence's idea.
1: The client isn't there, so you don't have anybody to speak for him. And what I did was try to recreate Lee Harvey Oswald in the best way that I could. And I talked as if he were alive.
3: Throughout the trial, Spence repeatedly picks up and carries Oswald. He holds him up to witnesses and talks to him for effect. He addresses Oswald by his first name, Lee.
1: I might say, Lee, you know, when they charge you, uh, that doesn't mean you're guilty in this country.
3: Spence argues there's no way Oswald had time to fire the third and magic bullet which killed Kennedy. No way he could have left the schoolbook depository without having been seen. It was a setup, a conspiracy. Oswald, as he said himself, was nothing more than a patsy. I mean, almost as inevitably as death and taxes, there's always a chorus of critics screaming the word conspiracy. As the prosecutor, Bugliosi argues Oswald did it. He's quick and studied and aggressive. And the two attorneys constantly jab at each other, like when Spence mispronounces Bugliosi's name. The name is pronounced Bugliosi, The G is silent. I've told you this several times. Only, I know it's difficult, but.
1: That's the only thing that's Italian silent about GB4L Mr. Bugliosi, silent. Your Honor. Is the, the
5: jury G. will disregard that sidebar remark for any purpose at all.
3: As lawyers, they're natural performers and a real courtroom is the best training for a staged one. Mr. Bugliosi, call your first witness. Spence and Buliosi question and cross-examine 30 witnesses. Government calls mean, Buell Fraser. Government calls Eugene Boone. Government calls Harold Norman. Did you become acquainted or friendly with Mr. Oswald at work, Mr. Norman? No. People government who knew Oswald Graham. or had lived next in and around witness. Dallas in the early 60s. Call your next Many of them were interviewed by the Warren Commission. A call
4: government called Lyndall Scheniefeld. government calls Nelson Delgado.
3: Outside the soundstage, people took this mock trial seriously. Newspapers advertising Showtime's broadcast promised a -a one-of-a-kind experiment with the goal to heal a nation. Redhead says that was the point, to air the facts of the case. Whereas the Warren Commission was secluded, somewhat secretive, this mock trial was supposed to be a public forum. They followed the rules of a regular trial so that even though the verdict had no legal weight, at least there'd be some sense of legitimacy. The jury deliberated for a few hours and returned with a guilty verdict. Oswald had acted alone and killed the president. But when the trial aired a few months later in the U.S., American audiences were asked to call in and vote. Did they think Oswald did it? Was he set up? And the majority disagreed with the jury. Americans were certain Oswald had not acted alone, even though the verdict came from a jury of their peers. So they tried Oswald again.
1: One of the most compelling questions of our time asks, who fired the shots which killed the President of the United States?
3: This time, the court is lawyers from the American Bar Association. It's 1992, and technology is slowly entering the courtroom. Super basic 3D imaging that looks like a Nintendo game. The lawyers showed animations from Oswald's point of view in the sixth floor window and charted the trajectory of the bullets. All the witnesses were fake, and testimony was scripted from the Warren Commission. You'd think the verdict would be a foregone conclusion. But the jury in the mock trial voted to acquit Oswald of murder. By 1992, the government hadn't released any new evidence about the Kennedy assassination in years. — Time? —
1: Between six seven seconds. I — mean, That's without really aiming.
3: But the year before, Oliver Stone's blockbuster movie JFK reinvigorated the conspiracy theorists. —
1: The other problem is there was a tree there. Blocking the first two shots.
3: Bill Simpich was one of them.
5: I'm Bill Simpich. I'm a civil rights attorney in San Francisco, California. I've been practicing for about 30 years, and uh, I love doing cases that would characterize me sometimes as a troublemaker.
3: Simpich got hooked on the assassination after watching Stone's movie. He's studied the mock trials, read the Warren Report, and written a book debating and discounting much of the government's evidence against Oswald. It could all be a conspiracy. But for Simpich, the bigger point is that the lack of a real trial cuts America's national narrative in half.
5: We lose our history. We lose our our sense of our own destiny, if you will. Uh, Where are we going as a country? I think this argument can be made because of the way these assassinations were covered up in the 60s and the Vietnam War was not properly analyzed after it was over. That got us into the Iraq War. It got us into drone warfare and thinking that we can kill our way out of uh, our problems. I think all we're doing is creating new adversaries every time we kill somebody without a trial. And, uh, you know, it's really important for people to not play make-believe, especially when you live in a powerful country like the United States.
3: But in a way, that's what all these mock trials do. They make-believe a rational world, one where justice is served. Without an official, legal ending, the Oswald trial is replayed, continuously. One year, it's a made-for-TV drama. The next, an experiment in courtroom technique. It's a legal blank slate. It could be anything you want. And in 2013, on the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination, Dallas wanted to reclaim the story. So they tried Oswald again.
5: What if Lee Harvey Oswald had never been shot? What if he had his day in court?
2: November 22nd, 1963. Three shots changed this country and scarred this city. The State Bar of
3: Texas held its own mock trial. Like every trial previously, they promised the trial of the century. But the verdict barely changed. The jury was undecidedly hung. And when they polled the audience, 75% still thought it was a conspiracy.
4: You know, one struggles for for an answer, and nothing in life is anything definitive. You have to you have to make judgments, you have to weigh stuff.
3: That's filmmaker Mark Redhead again.
4: It's this dream that maybe we'll get we'll get the answer. There's a a line from Pushkin which goes the following, maybe sound terribly pompous but anyway it goes to hosts of petty truths man much prefers a single edifying lie and I guess that what that means is that one wants a clear definitive answer whereas actually reality is made up of a whole load of tiny kind of petty details all of which add up to something significant we have to weigh those petty details we'll never get you know the great unifying theory which explains everything
3: After any trial, people believe what they want. But with Oswald's case, when people don't get the verdict they want, they just do it again. Read in
1: the newspapers that his intended victim would pass by the building where he worked at a certain
5: time. Creating the following drama, certain names and events have been changed. Please rise! The 35th president John F. Kennedy was assassinated.
1: film establishes three shots of 5.6 seconds. Yeah. I'm Oswald. Awesome. Time me.
2: For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Cleek, And I'm Nancy Mullane. Mock trials are actually quite popular. Even justices on the U.S. Supreme Court like to get involved in pretend justice. Recently, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg presided over a mock trial of Don Quixote. Attorney Tom Goldstein argued on behalf of Don Quixote. Goldstein has argued before the real U.S. Supreme Court and teaches Supreme Court litigation at Harvard Law School. Welcome, Attorney Goldstein.
0: Well, the justices and some of our other prominent judges in town in Washington really do want to be out supporting institutions, supporting in the arts, and they have gotten involved in this Shakespeare Theater mock trial program, which happens once a year, and it's effectively our nerd prom. That's, that's based on one of the plays that's going on at the theater. And this year it was Man of La Mancha, which is based on Don Quixote. They give us the play, and that's the record in the case. So they gave us the play uh, Man of La Mancha, which is a musical. And they say, all right, based on this, the questions for this play are, does uh, Alonso, nay, Don Quixote, need a guardian, because he's lost his mind, If he does need a guardian, who should it be? Should it be his niece, Antonia, or should it instead be his loyal friend, Sancho? And what we do is we have a ruling, ostensibly, by a trial court. Even though it's called the Shakespeare mock trial program, it's actually an appeal because we don't put on any witnesses or anything. And so here the trial court ruled that he did need a guardian and it should be his niece. And so we go up and we argue (laughs) an appeal in front of the justices and judges and uh, try and my job was to prove that he didn't need a guardian and if he did uh, it should be Sancho instead of his niece and you know we talked a lot about insanity and about dreaming
2: so if somebody's going out with a dream to do something well but they actually do things that actually hurt other people where is the line
0: well, that's the puzzle of the case. And it also it's hard because if you look at really Don Quixote's a work of literature, I think the backstory of the book is about the culture and politics of Spain at the time and its effort to kind of gain its footing uh, out in the new world and things like that. The need to see the world expansively and ideally, and that's really what it was so that it wasn't just that don quixote was imagining a horrible world or a strange world he was imagining a more perfect world a more chivalrous world where there was more respect there was more responsibility there was more loyalty and so what justice ginsburg said in reading the or issuing the court's ruling was that they found that he was not insane didn't need a guardian and that there was nothing wrong with seeing the world as it should be rather than it is and if we don't have people who do that then we'll never have progress
2: i mean this was this is really a precious experience for an attorney to be able to stand before justices on the supreme court and judges from the u.s court of appeals and have this kind of fantasy experience
0: i mostly practice in front of the court and so i get to argue in front of those folks um, know, pretty often. But this is the time where I get to crack jokes with them and be irreverent with them and ask them questions and things like that. And that's what's especially fun. And that is, you really get to see the justices and the judges as real human beings who are enjoying themselves, who are interested, who are engaging, and are, you know, can have some fun. So what was your
2: favorite moment?
0: You know, Justice Ginsburg is a very, very, very uh, quiet and unassuming person generally on the bench. And just whenever you see her out in the open, laughing, joking, um, when you see that she is the oldest member of the court, is just in perfect form that's always just entirely special and so being able to joke back and forth with her it's also just surreal because she's a you know she as much as any of the members of the court is quite proper and quite serious she there's a laughter index for supreme court justices and it's fair to say that she comes in near the bottom Uh, she's not up there to crack jokes and, you know, she's up there to get to the meat of the problem and what concerns her. And so this is just a wonderfully different context.
2: episode of Life of the Law was reported by Ashley Cleek and edited by Casey Miner. Michael May is our managing editor. Caitlin Press designed the sound and produced the story with music by Matthew Darr. Special thanks to Naomi Mezzi, our advisory panel scholar, for her insight and production support. Life of the Law is a non project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of Podcasts, from American public media. If you haven't heard secret skin or a tiny sense of accomplishment, go to infiniteguests.org and hit a play button. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're funded by the Open Society Foundation, the Law and Society Association, the Proteus Fund, and by you. If you're new to Life of the Law or you're a regular, subscribe to our podcast and make a donation. It just takes a minute. Next week on our sister podcast, Live Law.
5: After spending a morning in a General Sessions courtroom, I have to say that Jefferson was right in theory and that Bierce was right in reality. They say that in America, everything's for sale.
2: That's next week on Live Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.